Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, carrying on our continuing conversation about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Today, I have a special guest on the podcast. Dr. Adam Groza is the vice president for enrollment student services and associate professor of philosophy of religion here at Gateway Seminary. But I've asked Adam specifically to be on the podcast today because of a recent chapel message that he preached here at Gateway on a very important subject, which is going to be the subject also for today's podcast. The subject is developing meaningful friendships to sustain you in your life as a ministry leader. Developing friendships that sustain you in ministry leadership. Now this message that uh, Adam preached is in the context of a larger series that we're doing here at Gateway this fall. Our chapel series is called uh, From Calling to Commission. And it's a study of the life of David from his call to be king uh, until he was actually commissioned as king. And we're looking at what were the seminal stories that happened in his life that are recorded in Scripture that help us understand some of the formative issues and some of the formative relationships that produced uh, him as a king and us as ministry leaders. So, Adam, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you for being my guest. Well, thanks for having me, Dr. Orge. And also, as a part of this preaching that you did for us, I ask you to address another important issue, and that is the modern interpretive uh, opinion that David and Jonathan, his good friend, actually had some kind of homosexual relationship or had some kind of same-sex relationship. So we're going to do two things on the podcast today. Eventually, we're going to get to the point where we talk about having real friends that sustain you in ministry leadership. But along the way, we're going to talk about the story of David and Jonathan and their relationship and how that has been portrayed by some modern interpreters and then what we can say about that as we try to bring a more, uh, I think, biblical and balanced interpretation to that story. So just uh, in short order, Uh, The story of David and Jonathan is the story of two men who had a remarkable relationship and carried on for some time and reported to us in Scripture. Now, Adam, you start your message in chapel, and I want you to start this podcast today by laying out sort of a, uh, I guess you might say, a, a strategic approach to how you look at Scripture. And you contrast uh, the difference between exegeting a passage and eisegeting a passage. Can you explain the difference of those two words today? Yeah, I think it's an important distinction um, that a lot of people learn in seminary, probably for the first time. But exegesis is getting your message from the text. Eisegesis is reading your message into the text. I think that while there's various uh, methods of sermon delivery and styles, and we want to make room for all of that, Um, fundamentally what we want to train ministers to do is to preach passages, to preach sermons that come from the text. I think this is my sort of working definition of an expository sermon. Um, It's exegetical. It's it's where the points come from the text. The person in the pew should, with Bible opened and eyes on page, be able to follow the preacher, even though the preacher has had years of seminary training and the person in the pew might not have had any of that training— they should be able to track where the sermon is coming from and how the preacher is getting his message from the text itself. That's the basic distinction between exegesis from the text and eisegesis into the text. That's an excellent summation, and I think that's really at the core of what happens often when 
uh, people today look at the story of David and Jonathan. Rather than try to exegete the passage, meaning that we try to understand what it meant in its context and therefore what it will mean in ours, we read our context back into the story and by doing so commit this what I think is a misuse of Scripture, which is eisegeting it by putting meaning into it that really never was there. So what about David and Jonathan? Some people today say that they were more than friends. They were in some way sexually attracted to one another or even had some kind of sexual relationship with one another. Let's talk about that. The Bible says that these men had a remarkable relationship. But Adam, what are some of the reasons why you think that it's inappropriate to read more into their relationship than perhaps the Bible actually describes? Well, I, I think that fundamentally what's going on with David and Jonathan is that people are seeing the description of their interaction in the Bible, and they are reading into that description our own culture's um, uh, so, sort of stereotypes of homosexual activity. So, for instance, um, in our own culture, for, for a man to, um, to, to, to say that he loves another man um, there's a lot of guys that might not do that, but just because you might not do that doesn't mean that um, that, that activity is, is inherently um, homosexual or queer or homoerotic or any of these other things. And there are some specific passages that when you read them through our own cultural lens, uh, the sort of emotional appeal that's made by people who have this gay interpretation of Jonathan and David is to say, well, obviously they must be gay because I'm not gay and I wouldn't do that. Therefore, they must be gay because they do it, which I think is logically wrong. It's biblically bad interpretation, and for many reasons. It's, it's actually not a loving way to read homosexuality into the text, even by those who want to advance a homosexual agenda. And you also said uh, in your recent message that there were uh, that, that people often read into situations what is not there because they confuse the naming of something with the existence of something, meaning that uh, we, we say it must have existed back then or must not have existed back then because uh, it wasn't defined or described in the same way as it is today. It's kind of a confusing circular way of looking at things, but see if you can help us understand a little bit more about what that means. It is confusing, and, and the basic argument by many who want to advance a pro-homosexual interpretation on Scripture is that they say that that homosexuality as, as a same-sex attraction um, wasn't really discovered and understood by psychologists until the 19th century. And so, because this wasn't discovered until the 19th century, the Bible cannot possibly speak against it. Whatever the Bible speaks against isn't what the, 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 the LGBT community is advocating for. Um, and so by doing that, they're making the fundamental mistake of, 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 um, of misunderstanding that just because the Bible might not use the words that we use. It certainly understands and presents a position on the issue of same-sex attraction. Uh, I think that it's, it's a very low view of ancient peoples to suggest that they didn't understand that same-sex attraction was behind same-sex acts. I mean, that would be a very low view of ancient peoples. And it's just logically inconsistent because, for instance, the example that I use in the paper is that, you know, uh, uh, oxygen wasn't discovered until the, the 18th century by Antoine Lavoisier. Well, obviously, oxygen existed before the 18th century. We didn't have the word oxygen. 
Uh, we might not have had the concept, the molecular concept of oxygen, but we, we certainly had oxygen in existence. Um, and so, so homosexuality, as it's laid out, um, might not have come into full formation until the 19th century. But that's not to say that homosexuality, in regards to same-sex attraction and queerness and even transgender um, and effeminacy, all of these things certainly existed in the ancient world. Um, there's lots of literature laying out the idea, the connection between attraction and action. Plato does this 600 BC. Um, and so in the paper, I'm, I'm basically saying that ministers shouldn't fall for that. The Bible speaks to homosexuality and it speaks against homosexuality as one of many forms of sin uh, involving sexual perversion. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm really taken aback, honestly, by people today who read into Scripture what is really in our cultural awareness something that uh, we think is the only way it could be or the only way it's ever been. And so, therefore, we have to take our current experience and somehow re understand, revision, reinterpret scripture to fit our cultural context and understanding of what even words mean, rather than simply understanding what the Bible says and letting it speak to us and letting it be the final authority in what we have to say. Well, uh, you, as you were preparing this uh, message that you preached recently, uh, you identified a number of different scripture passages. I think you said there were about eight major passages in the books of First and Second Samuel dealing with the relationship of David and Jonathan. Now, obviously, on the podcast today, we're just going to be able to talk about maybe one of these. So let's pick out one. And I picked out First Samuel 18, 1 to 4, and this is what the Bible says. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, those who interpret the relationship of David and Jonathan to be some kind of same-sex relationship or physical attraction or even a homosexual union, they use this passage to do that. So let's talk about some of the phrases in this passage. What do you think the Bible means when it says the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul? Well, I think that the first thing I would want to say is that context is always the key to interpreting Scripture. And Scripture as a whole is God's Word. The, the Spirit of God is inspiring the Scripture through human authors, but there is a divine author um, that knits all of these passages together. And so um, in Leviticus, prior to this passage in 1 Samuel, obviously we have um, very strong statements about the sinfulness of homosexuality. And so it would make no sense for Samuel to present the relationship between David and Jonathan as being one of same-sex attraction. That would not have been good for um, the presentation of David. It would not have been good for, for Samuel. It would not have been good for the nation of Israel. Um, and, and, and it would have made no sense just in terms of the, um, the cohesiveness of Scripture. Um, and not only the cohesiveness of Scripture as we see it in our day, but even in their day. Samuel would have had no reason to have exonerated a relationship or made positive statements about a relationship that was contradicting uh, the Word of God, the law of God as it was at that time. So th this is, uh, like you said, it, it's absurd. It's ridiculous to think that Samuel's going to do something that's somehow going to benefit the nation of Israel when it's in direct contradiction to so much of what they already valued by the Word of God. Correct. Yeah, and, and, and I think that 
that what's going on here is not sexual attraction. I, in, the, in the previous chapter, um, or earlier in the chapter, um, and in the previous chapter, we, we have this, this famous story of David killing Goliath, and Goliath represents sin and death and destruction, and Israel does not have an ability to save itself from these threats. And so God brings a shepherd um, as king, an unexpected hero, who uh, defeats sin and death, Goliath, scaled, as it were, as a serpent, representing, um, representing all of these things that God saves us from and promises to save us from in Genesis 3.15. And so this is a picture of salvation, and, Sam, um, and, and, and so Jonathan is communicating covenant love to David because David is the king, and he is, he is making these actions as one in submission, as one in loyalty to David. And so when we read this, we're reading about intimate friends, but not anything intimate sexually. It's intimate friendship, and, it's, and it's, a, it's a picture of, I think, ultimately, the kind of loyalty and uh, the kind of uh, deference that we're to show to Christ mm. um, as our Savior. Yeah, that's a good word. Now, let's talk about another phrase in this same passage. He said that Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that, he w- that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And some people even see something erotic in this gift giving that went on between these men. How do you see this part of the story of Jonathan giving David his clothing and his and his uh, the weapons of war or the armaments that he was carrying? Well, I think I see it. Um, maybe a modern illustration could be after a after a um, like a, like a sporting event. I don't know. I'm thinking hockey, where guys you know sort of out of a sign of respect they exchange jerseys. Well, David's not taking off his armor. Uh, but Jonathan's taking off his because Jonathan is in submission. It is a friendship, but it's a friendship where Jonathan recognizes that David has been anointed king. I think if we fast forward to what Jesus says, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to be willing to leave father and mother. You've got to be willing to give it all up and take up your cross. And I think this is the picture of, uh, of covenant love uh, that is between Jonathan and David. It's not intimate. It's, not, it, it's intimate, but it's not sexual. Mm-hmm. That's a good word. And I think that's a, another important concept that's uh, in this passage and really in Scripture among relationships like this, and that is it's possible to have an intimate relationship without it being a sexual relationship. It's possible for one man to show a remarkable devotion to, uh, even submission before another man without there having to be some kind of sexual overtone to that situation. Well, I think you've raised another interesting point when you say that they had an intimate relationship with one another. Uh, You know, in our world, in certain cultures, this kind of intimate familiarity between men is more common. Uh, For example, I've been in other cultures where I saw men walking hand in hand in public or walking arm in arm together or sharing uh, what I would consider personal space while they ate together or while they talked together. We might not do that so much in America or here in the West. But these acts of Jonathan and David need to be understood in their context and in the culture in which they were being lived, not uh, through the lens of our culture and context as we see them. Yeah, that's absolutely right. If, if any of the listeners have been um, on the streets of Seoul, they will see people walking arm in arm. We see this in India as well. And so to, to read our cultural bias into these expressions of of non-sexual intimacy, of brotherly relationship. This is the phrase that David uses f- towards Jonathan, that Do- Jonathan is his brother, um, that as, as, as David has been abandoned, as there are those who have doubt 
God's call and anointing of David, Jonathan does not. And so Jonathan's loyalty is expressed in these gestures of taking off his armor and saying, as it were, what I have belongs to you and I will follow you and I recognize God's uh, anointing of you as my king. And so it is that loyalty, that covenant relationship that's on display. And again, I, I think about Jesus when he says, if anyone comes to me and wishes to be my disciple, he, he has to hate his own father and his own mother. He has to be willing to turn his back on his possessions, his family. Jesus is saying, in effect, if you're to be my disciple, I must come first. And as Jonathan recognizes God's anointing, Jonathan's love for David is an expression of his love for God. And so that, I think, is really the most important thing that we understand about, about Jonathan is that his love for David is his love for Yahweh, and his respect for David is his respect for God's ability to anoint whom he wants to be king um, and, and deliver his people through whoever he chooses. The overarching message that you've tried to communicate is this. David and Jonathan had an intimate friendship, a warm and loving relationship. Uh, that relationship expressed itself in their kind words toward one another, their deep devotion expressed to one another, and even exchanging of gifts and giving of things that symbolized their commitment to one another. But none of that, none of that should be read through a 21st century interpretive lens in which they are made to be something that they were not or that they're forced to be something the Bible really has no frame of reference for honoring or uh, exonerating. So I think that what we really need to see in the life of David and Jonathan is two men bound together in great friendship. And that sort of leads us to the second part of the podcast and the really positive aspect of this message. Now, uh, going back to the beginning, I said that we're involved in a series of messages here this fall at Gateway Seminary in Chapel on the preparation of a ministry leader from call to commission. And we're studying the life of David during those formative years after he uh, uh, experienced God's call to be king, but some years went by before he actually became king. And so what was going on in that interim time, that interlude, if you will, of shaping and preparation and formation? And one of the things that happened was that he and Jonathan developed this very meaningful relationship. And we see there a pattern of what it means to come into that kind of relationship as a sustaining means of God's grace through friendship. So what does that phrase mean, Adam, that God extends his grace through friendship? And particularly for those of us who are in a leadership context, how does God extend his grace through friendship to keep us going in ministry leadership? Well, probably the, the listeners will be familiar with the, the phrase or the idea that God ordains the ends and the means. God's going to get you where he's going to get you. Um, he's going to see you through, but he's going to use people to get you from here to there. Um, and so when I say that God uses friends as a means of his grace, it's God's grace that sustains us. But God's grace sort of shows up in the lives of friends that are with us during tough times, that give us counsel, that direct us back to God's word. I think that's what God does in our life. I think that that's what God did in David's life through Jonathan. And I think one of the things we can do is look at their relationship and glean some things about what our friendships should be as we long to have intimate friendships that sustain us in ministry. In my book, The Painful Side of Leadership, I actually have a section entitled Building Your Friendship Team. And I talk about the importance of building a network of people around you as a ministry leader that can sustain you over the long haul of doing ministry. 
Well, in your message on David and Jonathan, you not only called for the import, uh, called out the importance of this kind of relationship, but you actually went a little further and outlined some qualities of the kind of friends we need in order to sustain us as ministry leaders. And the first thing you said was, you have to find a friend of conviction. What does that mean and how does that help you as a ministry leader? I think a friend of conviction is someone that shares your fundamental commitment to the authority of God's word. I mean, listen, God's word is the ultimate authority for life and godliness. It's sufficient. And so we need people in our lives that help us to combat the lies that we tell ourselves, that culture tells us, and to give us biblical definitions of manhood and success and right and wrong, and to call us out of the darkness and into the light at various points of life. I think that by friends of conviction, I also identify the fact that I think there's a pattern in David and Jonathan where these are two men. And I think that while we, uh, it is appropriate for us to have brother and sister relationships in ministry, I do believe that if we look at Titus 2 and other passages, the model is that our intimate Christian friends should be of the same sex. And so this eliminates a number of things. It, it eliminates the appearance of evil. It eliminates any temptation that might come along with those sort of intimate friendships if they're of an opposite gender. And so I think that David and Jonathan are able to go deep and support themselves in a particular way precisely because they shared their commitment to God's word and to honoring God in their life. And I think that that is a model that we can follow. Adam, I have had the privilege of working with men over the years who were men of conviction and who were my friends. And in times when I have waffled a bit, found myself a little weak-kneed or a little unsure, men have said, no, this is what you have to stand for. This is what needs to happen. And I'm going to stand with you to make sure that you do the right thing. And I think I've been that same kind of friend for some other people along the way. You know, no one of us is strong enough that we never waver, never wobble, never get a little weak need in the moment about what we should do in a difficult situation that where convictional leadership is required. And so it's important to have friends of conviction who will sort of give us a little extra backbone in the moment when we have to step forward and do the right thing. You also said we need to find a friend who will show up. I love that phrase. What do you mean by it? Well, in 1 Samuel 23, 16, there's a, a scene that's described in God's word where David has been betrayed. He's on the run. He's at Horesh. And it says simply, Jonathan rose and went to David. It doesn't have, do any good to have friends of conviction that know God's word and are courageous if they don't show up mm -hmm. in those difficult times in your life. And so Jonathan is a friend who, who actually goes to David. He doesn't phone it in to use sort of a modern phrase. He doesn't he, in our own context, he doesn't just send a text or, or well-wish. He actually goes to David. Um, and so he, he brings to bear kind of an, an incarnate ministry where he shows up. He, he, um, he, in doing so, actually risks his own life when you think about it, to go to David um, at a time where David was weak. This was Jonathan putting his loyalty on display, being physically present with someone that was in danger. In other words, saying, I'll be in danger with you. Such is my love for Yahweh and my belief in his anointing of you as king. And that is so powerful. I, I think about several instances in my life where people have showed up, and by being there physically present with me gave me such incredible strength. I remember a few years ago when I was diagnosed with cancer, I went into the hospital early in the morning for my surgery, and when I arrived at the hospital, there were three couples sitting in the foyer of the hospital waiting for us. 
And I remember walking through the doors and seeing them there and just sort of blurting out, what are you guys doing here? I was so surprised to see them there so early in the morning. And one of the men, they all stood up, and one of the men said, well, we're standing by. And tears came into my eyes. He said, we're standing by. We're, we're here. We're with you. We're whatever you need. We're, we're standing by. I think about another time in my life when I was uh, in the process of moving the seminary. And it was a really difficult time. We were involved in all the legal battles and all the difficult public challenges and the picketers and the, uh, and the, and the uh, attackers and all the complainers and everything that was going on. And uh, we hit a particularly low moment. And I remember calling the chairman of our board and just saying, I, I don't know what else to do. I, I feel like I've, I've exhausted all the options and I don't know where else to turn. I don't know what else to do. And he said, do you need me to get on a plane and fly out there right now? Because whatever it takes, we've got to get you through this. We're going to stand with you. You're going to keep leading us because we're all going to make it together. And we did make it through together. But I think about that guy showing up for me that night saying, I'm on my way, man. I'm on mm -hmm. my way. And then another time, I could tell you these stories, I guess, the rest of the time on the podcast. But another time uh, when I was in a, involved in a really challenging personal situation and a friend of mine called and said, I'm on my way. He didn't say, can I come? Should I come? He said, I'm on my way. And he showed up at my place and just stayed a couple of days and took care of some things and just supported me. And it was, it was just awesome. You're going to, you got to find a friend who will show up, someone who will get in a car or get on a plane and who will show up at your door and say, I'm here for you. You're not going down on my watch. I'm going to make sure you make it. That's the kind of friend I'm going to be. That You also said we have to find a friend who's loyal. And, of course, Jonathan was loyal to David, but uh, talk about what that really cost him because of who Jonathan was and who his father was. Yeah, loyalty for Jonathan meant, um, meant basically uh, – siding against his own family. I mean, he stood to gain politically if his, if his own father had maintained the throne, but he, he put himself after what he knew was God's, his own self-interest after what he knew um, God's choice had been through the anointing of David. By loyal, what I mean is sticking with someone in hard times as they seek to follow the Lord. You know, the Bible says love bears all things, and I think that's loyalty. Loyalty is sticking with someone who is seeking to walk in the light of God's word. And the reason I put it that way is because I want to be careful. There, there, there are in some Christian circles a misunderstanding of loyalty, that loyalty is, is sort of covering for someone when they're doing something you know is wrong, and that's not biblical loyalty. That's right. You know, I, I say in the paper and in the, and in the sermon that, that, that friendship, godly friendship, like Jonathan and David, is a means of God's grace. But there is no grace mediated when we lie um, and so biblical loyalty is speaking the truth. And we see this, for instance, in 1 Samuel 19, 1 through 7, where Do Jonathan sticks up for David uh, to Saul. And he basically says, Dad, David hasn't done anything wrong. And when Jonathan says that, he's not covering up any wrong. He's telling the truth. And that's what I mean by biblical loyalty, is telling the truth, never lying to cover a friend. That's not um, that's not loyalty. I, I, I think that we, we always have to be careful to distinguish being a loyal man with being a yes man. Um, the story of Jonathan justifies and supports the idea of biblical loyalty, but not being a yes man who covers up any wrongs. Man, that's so good. I love that phrase, be a loyal man, not a yes man. I love that. 
And then finally, you said the model of Jonathan Dave and David help us to understand the importance of finding a friend who will strengthen you, someone who will actually infuse you with grace and strength and courage. Talk just a moment about that and how you see that playing out in David and Jonathan. Well, going back to that passage about uh, Jonathan going to David at Horish, it says that he goes to David and he strengthened his hand in God. He strengthened his hand in God. And, and so when he shows up, he, he, he's there to strengthen his hand. And the hand of David, I think, symbolizes kind of the work that David had to do. As ministers, we have work to do. And, and biblically loyal friends strengthen our hand. They enable us to go on and fulfill the calling that God has on our life. What's interesting is how Jonathan strengthens David at Horish. Jonathan doesn't just show up and say, you know, you can do it, David, or I believe in you, David. No, he shows up and he says, this is, this is what he says as recorded in God's word. He says, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. And Saul, my father, knows this. So the way that Jonathan strengthens David to go on and fulfill his calling is by quoting what God has said. So once again, this picture of loyalty, this picture of friendship, this, this picture of, of being a friend who shows up is somebody who shows up with God's word, who strengthens us by reminding us what God has said in moments when we're tempted to believe something else, to believe a lie, or to somehow convince ourselves that God's not going to follow through on his promises. A friend will remind us to trust in the Lord. Well, these are excellent insights about friendship, true friendship that can sustain us as ministry leaders. The model of David and Jonathan teach us that we need friends who have conviction, who will show up, who will be loyal, and who will strengthen us by reminding us of what is true when we're tempted to believe something so false. We need friends like that in order to sustain us in ministry leadership. And if that's the truth or the case, then it's also important that you be that kind of friend. Not just go around saying, I need these kind of friends, but I'm going to be this kind of friend. And you will find that that kind of meaningful, interpersonal support that you can offer other leaders in ministry will be reciprocated as God returns it back to you but you'll find deep fulfillment in giving that kind of support to other people. A number of years ago, a prominent ministry leader said to me, just as I was starting out in uh, more public leadership like I'm doing today, he said, Jeff, you'll find that you'll get a lot of accolades for some of the things you do in ministry, but you'll, f- you'll find that you will value most highly the things you do that hardly anyone else will know about. Well, recently I had a friend that had a rough time. I was able to step in and provide some personal ministry. And he sent me a text and said, you are a true and kind friend. I'll never forget what you did for me. Well, that text means more to me, quite honestly, than a lot of other things that people have given me uh, compliments for in public settings. Because I know that in that moment that I helped my brother, I was a David and Jonathan kind of friend. I was there with some conviction to give him some backbone and to show up at a hard and difficult time and to be loyal for him and to strengthen him by reminding him of God's good work in his life. I'm grateful that I've had those kind of friends in my life. In fact, quite honestly, I've had that kind of friendship extended to me a lot more than I've extended it to others. But I'm making it a focus in my life right now to be a good friend to other ministry leaders so that I might be the kind of blessing to them that others have been to me and I might model and live out 
this David and Jonathan kind of relationship. Listen, we've debunked this myth that David and Jonathan had some kind of homosexual relationship. They were just two men who had a deep, intimate, abiding love for one another, and it showed up in their profound friendship. So I'm challenging you today. Find a group of friends that will support you in this way and be this kind of friend to them and to others as you are sustained by God's grace and ministry leadership. Put this into practice. As you do it, it'll improve your overall efforts of leadership and your effectiveness in the work you're doing. It'll make you a better leader as you lead on.